We're starting a four-week series. It's a very quick series uh, in the book of Jonah. And how many of you, you are very familiar with this book? Like you feel like, I know the book of Jonah, right? Um, Jonah is one of those books, much like, much, much like a lot of scripture. Um, there is so much under the surface here. Um, so much for God to teach us about himself, about ourselves, so much for him to teach us about the gospel. So much foreshadowing happens in the book of Jonah. And so I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 for us, and then we're going to pray. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come up upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, And said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous among them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So when I was in college, I worked at uh, the BCYC. Anybody know what the BCYC is? The Belton Christian Youth Center. It's right down the road. And I was in charge of the PE time for the kids. And one of my favorite games to play was Red Rover. Okay. Is everybody, I'm kind of coming in under the assumption that everybody knows what Red Rover, Red Rover is, but just in case you don't know what Red Rover is, it's one of the most classic games ever played. You would have two teams, 
and each team, would, we're going to do this as a church afterwards, by the way, <laughs> together. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you would have two teams, and each team would face each other while holding hands. And one team would call over someone from the other team uh, to come to their side. And so you would say, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Colton come over. And whoever that knucklehead was would run over to the other team's side. And his goal was to try to break through uh, the line of the other team. If he didn't break the line, he would join that team. But if he did, he would go back to his team. So one day at the BCYC, we're playing Red Rover, Red Rover. Okay? One team started their turn, and they said, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Josh come over. Okay, I don't know. I know we have at least one Josh here. I'm not picking on you. This is a different Josh. Okay. And Josh, who was a little shy and I think really didn't want to play Red Rover uh, that day, uh, instead of running, he kind of just stood there for a second. And then all of a sudden, he just bolted the opposite direction. Okay. And then for a second, like a split second, everyone just kind of stared like, what is going on here? Why is he running that way? And then this little girl decided that she was going to chase Josh down. And so she started chasing Josh throughout the gym until finally this little girl tackled Josh. And then she stood up and said, Josh, that's not how you play the game, right? Uh, and so this week, I, I, that story just kept coming back to my mind. As I thought, and Tristan used this phrase earlier, as I thought about the relentless pursuit of God, I thought about that little girl from, years, from 12 years ago uh, and her relentless pursuit to bring back Josh to play the original purpose of the game. Uh, and I just could not get that picture out of my mind, just the thought of, man, isn't that who God is? That he will chase us. He will pursue us. You, your spouse, your kids, your parents, whoever, it doesn't matter who, he will pursue them. If they are his, he will chase them down and he will grab them and he will bring them back to himself. That is our God. And it's a story, it's, it's a story of our Bible. Sin and grace, that the people of God, out of their insanity, will run from God. And God, a sovereign, gracious God, will time and time again pursue his people. It's a story of our Bible, and it's a story of Jonah. It's a story of Jonah. So let's start in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, a son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So when you see that phrase, the word of the Lord came to, that tells us that this is a word from God to Jonah, right? It's not for anybody else. This word is for Jonah. That is how God would speak to his prophets, that God had set his prophets apart to be his mouthpiece to Humanity, that that phrase is reserved for prophets. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and God's command for Jonah is that he is to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, okay? And Assyrians were known not just in Israel, but among every other nation. And they were known for their sinfulness. They were known for their arrogance. They were known for their pride, and they were known for their absolute brutality in war. I mean, just brutal. They wouldn't just overtake other nations. They would slaughter other nations. And the Jewish people had a strong distaste for the Assyrians, and rightfully so. Like, in, in fact, in, in 2 Kings 14.25, we actually meet Jonah. And Jonah was advising 
King Jeroboam II. And in that text, we learn that unlike the other prophets, Amos and Hosea, who were criticizing the government for its injustfulness, uh, for its unfaithfulness, Jonah had supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence across the world. And that was in direct response to the threat that the Assyrians posed against the Israelites. So for Jonah, there's history here. There's history here. When God brings this call, there's something already at play in Jonah's heart. There is already implanted with Jonah a deep anger towards the people in Nineveh. And in Jonah's defense, what God is calling uh, Jonah to do is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy, crazy. Assyria is the most violent place on the planet. And the Ninevites, people in Assyria, had already attacked Jonah's people and already killed, probably assuming, people that Jonah knew. So there's already something happening when God brings this call. But here's the deal. God knows his prophet. He knows where his heart is. He he knows what isn't well. And just like us, he knows our hearts. And he knows your heart. And he knows where your heart struggles. He knows what's stirring in your mind and your soul that wants to run from him. And God will do whatever he wants to pull that out of us. And so he goes after his prophet here through a call. right? And God is always doing something in our life that makes us uncomfortable. Always doing something in our life that requires faith from us, that sanctifies us and teaches us. And so in verse 3 it says, And so Jonah rose to flee. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So the book of Jonah, it's filled with Hebrew humor is irony. Okay, And this book is filled with irony. That in verse 1, God told Jonah, hey, arise and go to Nineveh. But then in verse 3, it says that Jonah did arise but he arose to go to Tarshish, right? And it's almost like God is like, hey, Jonah, I want you to arise. And he's like, yes, Lord. And he's okay, go to Nineveh. And he's like, nope. And he just runs the opposite direction. And so not only does Jonah not go to Nineveh, but he goes to the furthest place away from Nineveh in the known world. I meant to get a map, but I didn't. But think about it. If you can picture in your mind, if you're good with geography, Nineveh is in modern day Iraq, Okay. Tarshish is modern-day Spain. So he goes the complete opposite direction. He's not like, it's not like Jonah's confused, like, oh, sorry, God, I thought you meant Vegas. My bad. Um, another interesting thing about verse 3, and I don't know if you caught this, um, but it was very wordy, right? It, it's very wordy, and it's a little bit different than the rest of the chapter. Well, in Hebrew, there was a way to do memory devices uh, with the words, and one of them is called a chiasm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, a chiasm. But it's where you make the top sentence and the bottom sentence of the verse parallel one another. And so chiasm is the Greek word for crossing. And so the point is that the text makes an X, if that makes sense. So everything leads in that verse to the crossing in the X. Does that make sense? No, that doesn't matter. Okay, so it starts with from Tarshish, uh, uh, he starts with from Tarshish to Tarshish from the Lord. And then it ends with, to Tarshish from the Lord. Then it goes, he went down to Joppa, he went down to the ship, he found a ship, and he paid the ship's fare. And then right at the crossing, what does it say? Going to Tarshish. 
That is the text telling us Jonah's not confused. He knows exactly what he's doing. Jonah is running from God. There are four realities in this text, and the first one is that one, is that just like Jonah, we all run from God. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. It's true for Jonah in this text, and it's true for us. That Genesis 1, God creates humanity. He places them in the Garden of Eden. God literally calls it the Garden of Delight. (laughs) The Garden of Delight. And by Genesis 3, humanity has rejected God. God rescues the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He makes bread fall from heaven. He makes water come from the rock. And then the people of God make a golden calf out of their own, from their own hands. Time and time again, and this is true for the rest of the Old Testament, that time and time again, that despite the goodness and blessing of God, the people of God will reject God, that we have a tendency to look at what God has offered us and to say to him, no thanks, I think that there's something better. I think there's something better out there for me. And so the question that we all need to answer as we just judge Jonah is one, have we rebelled against God? Are we able to acknowledge our rebellion? And I'm not going to go through a list of sins that may be evidence that, hey, here's why we know and here's how you know that you're rebelling against God. The reality is if you're rebelling, you probably know it. You probably know it. Even right now, the Holy Spirit is probably bringing images and thoughts into your mind that tells you, yeah, I'm rebelling. I am rebelling against God. And here's the sad thing about our running. If we want to run from God, there's always a boat for it. If we want to run from God, there's always a boat for it. If you want to look at something on your phone that you know you shouldn't be looking at, there's always a way to do it, and there's always a way to hide it. If, if you want to be bitter about something, there's always something to be bitter about. If you want to complain about something, there's always something that's not going your way. If you, if you want blank this way to run from God, there is always a way to do it because it's in us. There is something in us that wants to run and there is an enemy that wants to provide for that way to run. Jeremiah 2.12 God says this, he says, be appalled, be appalled, O heavens, be appalled heavens at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's our story, that though we are made for him, to enjoy him, to glorify him, to satisfy him, we have rebelled. And we try to find our joy in broken things and broken systems that can never give it to us. But still, we continue to go back. We're drinking in sand and wondering why we're so thirsty. And so the big question here in this text is, okay, what is God going to do with Jonah? What's God going to do with us? When we run, what is God going to do with Jonah in his rebellion? Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. What does God do with the people who run? He chases. That's our second reality, that no matter what, God will chase us. God will pursue us. And and here's the question. Would it have been easy for God to just give up on Jonah? 
right? Like, does he say, okay, Jonah messed up, get over there, Amos, it's your turn, right? Tag in. No, he doesn't do that. He goes after Jonah. But here's the deal. Sometimes God's means of pursuing us can be difficult. Sometimes his means of pursuing us can be difficult. And for Jonah, God introduces a physical storm into his life. And for us, sometimes his, his means of pursuit for us will hurt before it heals. Hebrews 12.11. Hebrews 12.11. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me read that again. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes when God wants to expose your rebellion, he will introduce pain and trial. He's a loving father who wants to bring his children to maturity. And sometimes that means he will bring a storm to threaten your boat. And when we run from God, many times he will respond in his pursuit in one of two ways. One, he will keep from us that very thing that we want to run to. Right? He will keep from us the thing that we think will satisfy us, the thing that we think will give us joy. He will keep from us that thing, whatever that thing you think it is, whatever circumstance you want to go a certain way, whatever finance, financial goal you want to accomplish, whatever it is, the thing that your heart most wants, he will keep that thing from you until you realize that that thing will never satisfy you. You were not created for that thing. And so he'll keep that thing from you until you realize, God, you're the only one that I need. You're the only satisfying one. And then the second way he'll do it, which actually is much more terrifying, he will give to us the very thing that we think we want. The thing that we think will bring us freedom, the thing that we think will give us joy, the thing that we think will will give us satisfaction, he gives it to us. Think of the prodigal son who forsakes everything. And then he's in the muck and the mire with the pigs because he thought that that life would bring him joy. And before we know it, we look around and there is nothing but despair and destruction. And the only thing that we can do is say, God, I need you. He will give to us the very thing that we think will satisfy. Whatever sin we want to run to, he'll give it to us and then we look around and it's nothing but destruction. That's what he'll do. And it's God screaming at you to get your attention to say, I'm the only thing that can do this. I'm the only thing that can save you. I'm the only thing that can bring you satisfaction. I'm the only thing that can bring you joy. And here, God brings a storm. And so verse five, it says, the mariners were afraid. And they cried out to his, like be on this ship, right? They cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the people on this ship, they're terrified. They start getting religious. They're, they're crying out to their own gods. They're throwing, I mean, be there. They're throwing stuff off of the ship. This could be their clothes and possessions. We don't know. This could be a cargo that they're getting paid to deliver. But either way, they're literally throwing their livelihood off of the ship so that they don't die. But what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. There's chaos happening all around him, and he's sleeping. And here's why I think he's sleeping. Many times in the midst of our rebellion, we create around us a false sense of peace. 
We're chasing whatever sin we think will give us joy, and we create a false sense of peace that makes us think this is okay. Chaos is happening around us, and we know deep down this isn't right, but we create this false sense of peace that says everything's fine. This, this is okay. It's a fantasy that says what I'm doing is all right and that everything is okay. It's what the enemy does in our rebellion. He gives us this false picture of reality that says it's okay. But what's interesting is here in Jonah, the text itself actually destroys that false sense of peace. There's, there's a word, I don't know if you caught it, there is a word that is repeated over and over in these first few verses that gives us a reality check of what actually happens in our lives when we rebel against God. I don't know if you caught it, but it's the word down. Did you catch it? It's the word down. So I want to do something. Uh, look at verse 3 and verse 5. Every time you see the word down, I'm going to read it. Every time you see the word down, I want you to say it out loud. Okay? Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Then the mariners, this is verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had laid and was fast asleep. So Jonah runs, and then what happens? Down, 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 down. It's a picture. Jonah, the book of Jonah is always telling a story. It's a picture of the result of your life when you rebel against God. That in verse 3, he runs, and then he goes down, 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 down. That as you run from God, your life will spiral down. But then these first few verses are telling another story that the top of the ship is chaos. Every person is trying to figure out why this storm has come, why certain death is coming from them. And the guy who knows why, the guy who knows why is hiding under a false sense of peace so that he can deny his rebellion. And in our current world today, think about it, the world is chaos, right? The world is chaos. Sin has broken every part of our world, and the world is trying to figure out why. The world's trying to figure out why is everything so broken? Why is everything so messed up? And how can it be fixed? And the church, too many times, the people of God are asleep at the bottom of the ship under a false sense of reality. Everything's fine. And the church is fine with ignoring the call of God to bring the gospel to a lost and unreached world because we're too focused on ourselves and our own comforts. We're too focused on building this circle around us a false sense of reality, right? And what should the church be doing? What should Jonah be doing? Well, we see the call in verse six <clears throat> from an unlikely source. Verse six, it says, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so what do you do when you face the reality that you're running from God? What do you do when God reveals that to you? The face reality that you're running from God. You get the answer here. You arise and call out to your God. That's our third reality. That if we want to stop running from God, then we have to stop and call out to a sovereign God who knows everything about us. He knows that you're running. He knows why you're running. 
And he knows, how he's, he knows how he's going to pursue you, and he knows how you're going to respond. So to call out to a God who knows you, who knows your heart, that you come to him in repentance, that you be honest about your need, that, need, that you physically get on your knees, admit your sin, and call out to him. And so while this is happening, the sailors, they're trying to figure out all the chaos. And so in verse 7, they say, they said to one another, come, let us cast, cast lots so that we may know in whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, we don't exactly know what the act of casting lots is, but it's assumed it's the act of throwing something because of the word cast. Well, we don't know what they're throwing, but for our purposes, think of a magic eight ball. Anybody else here ever have a magic eight ball? I had one when I was in the fifth grade, and I, I mean, I was notorious for, like, does she like me? And it would say, like, not likely, or ask again later, right? Um, so think of a magic eight ball. And, and here's the deal. Um, here's what we know. The Lord is not only in control of the storm here, but he's also in control of the lots. Psalm 1633 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So other scripture has told us that when people cast lots, that is ordained by God. And so God commands the lots to fall on Jonah. And so in verse 8, they start to interrogate him. Hey, tell us on whose account this evil has come on. What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? What people are you? And then in verse 9, it says, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this is the moment where Jonah has to face the reality of who he is before God. He has, to, he has to admit who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. So all capital letters, that's the personal name for God. That means Yahweh. Like when the lots fall on him, think about this. When the lots fall on him, he doesn't make excuses, which is what so many of us do when we uh, admit our sin. Well, I, I don't know, but, but I, I did this, but it's because of this. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't blame his circumstances on something else. He doesn't deflect. He admits who he is. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. So yeah, this is happening because of me. He admits who he is. Then it says in verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so you're running away from the God of the sea on a boat? What were you thinking, right? Um, and then it says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, which I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. I don't know if this is, like, I could just imagine Jonah getting on the boat and some dude's like, hey, well, what are you doing? I'm running from the presence of the Lord. Oh, okay. Like, if you walked in here and told me that, I'd be like, let's have a conversation, right? Um, but the sailors have to decide what to do with him. Verse 11, they say, what shall we do to you so the sea may quiet down for us? And then verse 12, this is, this is the moment. Verse 12, he says, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. This is our fourth reality. He has called out to God. He's admitted who he is, and now he surrenders. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. I will surrender all of my life. And we have to understand here, there is no reason for us to believe that Jonah doesn't think he's going to die. Jonah has to assume that he's going to die. I mean, the, the sailors call this storm evil. Think about that. The pagan sailors call this storm evil. It is so bad, they all think they're going to die. And so there's no reason for us to think that Jonah doesn't think that he's just going to die. Right? 
And surrender can be a scary thought for us. The commitment to release all aspects of our life to another authority. But that's what God has called us to do. Complete surrender. God, you do with me what you will. And so the sailors here, they're not quite ready to give up with Jonah. They try to row harder and harder. But then in verse 15, it says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And it says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. So think about it. When Jonah is, in disobe- is disobeying, there is chaos. But when the person of God obeys God, right? When the person of God obeys God, the people, it's a testimony. It's a testimony to the work of God, to the grace of God. To the, this guy is willing to abandon everything. He's willing to sacrifice himself so that we can live. Does that sound familiar? There's a shadow here. There's a picture. It says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That God will always provide in the midst of our surrender. It's called grace. That's next week. But let me say this. The name Jonah means dove. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but it's not a compliment, okay? Uh, We think of a dove as a bird of peace, right? It's beautiful and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But for them, doves were silly, they were silly little birds that were dumb. That's what a dove was. Some people actually believe, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, actually believe that Jonah was a nickname for this prophet. Jonah actually wasn't his name, but the Bible's communicating something about this prophet. Um, And the Hebrew people, people on the Day of Atonement, every year, the Day of Atonement, which is the day where the Jewish people ask for forgiveness for their sins, every year on that day, they read the book of Jonah together. They still do this today. They read the book of Jonah together, and at the end, they all say in unison, I am Jonah, I am Jonah, I am Jonah. They're saying we all rebel against God, but God pursues us and makes a way to rescue us. For Jonah, God provided a fish, but for us, God provided himself. He came to rescue and redeem us by putting on flesh, by dying on a cross, by resurrecting from the grave in a demonstration that sin has no power any longer. Listen to what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you, no sign will be given to you, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the of the earth. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He says, the only sign you're going to get, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of me dying and raising from the grave. The raging sea and the cross are both places of desperation and death. The fish in the tomb are both figures of redemption. And so essentially says, the only sign you're going to get is my death 
and resurrection. God in the flesh has arrived. And he says something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah. I love that. God in the flesh is here. And so the question that I think would be good for us to think about as we uh, sing and we pray um, is, one, just facing the reality that we are all going to run. That is the reality of total depravity, that all of us, every single one of us, are sin. We, we are in sin before God. And all of us have run. But God has pursued us. He has chased us. Through the grace of Jesus Christ, he has rid, risen us uh, from the grave, brought us from death to life. That's the reality for all of us. And there may be some of us in here that we've never actually thought about that. The reality that we have run from God and that we are dead in our sin. But then there's another group of us, and you're going to see this in, the, in this book, especially when we get to chapter 4. Even though God has saved us from our running in the past, there is a tendency within us to run again and again and again, that there is something in us that wants to continue our rebellion, and there is a battle of the flesh and the spirit happening right now. And that doesn't mean that God is not in control anymore. That doesn't mean that God is not sovereign over your life. That doesn't mean that God isn't moving the pieces on the board to continue over and over again to bring you back to himself. And so I don't know where you're at. If you've never thought about the running, if you've never thought about the reality that Jesus has died and risen from the grave and his blood can cover your sins, or if you've embraced that in the past, but today you're embracing something much lesser, you're chasing after a sin that you think is going to satisfy you, and you've created a false sense of peace around yourself that makes you think that it's okay, when really it's not. It's going to lead to destruction and despair, and it will not satisfy you. The enemy is lying to you. It's lying to you. The thing that you think is going to satisfy you that is not Christ, that is a lie. He's the only one who's good enough. He's the only one who is king, prince of peace, authority, power. He's the only thing, only one who is worthy of your worship and your affections. And so I'll, I'll just say what the sailor said. Arise and call out to your God so that he might save you.